This is The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. Last spring, a new voice with a classical sound hit the airwaves. <laughs> it's a podcast called Music for a While, and its host is Jay Nordlinger, music critic for The New Criterion, and my old friend, who joins us to talk about it. Jay, welcome. Thank you, James. For readers of The New Criterion, Jay Nordlinger needs no introduction. He has been writing for The New Criterion every month since the year 2000. His column, called New York Chronicle, takes the measure of music in the big city and then some. His latest, on a recital at the Park Avenue Armory, a new piano concerto, a new cello concerto, and a performance of Winterreise, is his 203rd piece for the print magazine. Hmm. I have no idea. Jay has also written over 300 reviews and counting for the new Criterion Online. All this he does while fulfilling his day job as senior editor at National Review, where, many moons ago, I had the pleasure of working as his editorial colleague. I was a junior copy boy... As Jay arrived, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, I was as Jay arrived as managing editor, and listeners, let me say, Jay is as pleasant in person as he sounds in print. But that's not all. Jay also writes books for Encounter Books, Peace, they say, a history of the Nobel Peace Prize, and Children of Monsters, a look at dictatorial progeny. He also interviews cultural leaders. He has written presidential speeches, and he hosts more than one podcast. But the one I want to talk about is Music for a While, now in its 18th episode. Let's turn back and tune into episode one and hear how it all began. Hello and welcome to Music for a While. I'm Jay Nordlinger, music critic of The New Criterion, and this is a new podcast, as you may have gathered. We're going to talk a little music, make some points, tell some stories, tell a few jokes, but mainly we're going to listen to music. Because really, why talk about music when you can hear it? Well, that sounded a little sleepy. I think I've pepped up since then. <laughs> well, well, Jay, beyond your writing and your talking, you do a lot of listening. If there's an evening I happen to be at Carnegie Hall, you're almost always there, too. How much do you listen to in any given month? Well, James, we're, we're probably at the same concert because we have good taste. We want to hear that concert. It's probably not an accident. Oh, uh, in the season, I might go to, I don't know, three things a week, something like that. And uh, I listen to a lot of YouTube. I... Uh, I have or certainly had many thousands of CDs, and I find I don't really listen to them anymore. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a YouTube-ite. So. Well, I get asked this from time to time when it comes to art, but how uh, do you decide what to hear? Any recommendations? Yes. How do you go about that? Well, um, it, it depends on who wants to go. Uh, for myself, one thing I think is, um, what do I expect will be good? But what would be interesting to write about? Uh, what would be good fodder for my New York Chronicle, 
or for a standalone review? What might I want to comment on? So uh, I'll go hear some new music that I do not expect I'll be crazy about, but I find that I should write about it. You should keep up with the new and say yay or nay or in between or forgetting judgment. Uh, just let people know what is out there, what is being composed. And of course, music for a while, it's not just performance, but your affection for recordings that come through. Um, I have to imagine you have an extensive library. You mentioned the CDs. I guess yes. it's also YouTube now. Yes. And your writing certainly seems encyclopedic. Do you go back and listen to a piece to compare it to a live performance? Not very often. Um, I've, I, I know the mainstream repertoire pretty well by now. Um, it just happens with time. Uh, I have, um, what's the listening equivalent of gorging? <laughs> you gorge when you eat. I've done that too, feasting. Um, but I, I've listened to one heck of a lot of music since uh, childhood. And uh, I had a great many records, LPs, and hundreds of audio cassettes, and, and then several thousand CDs. And at the moment, James, a little bit weird, I don't know what you do, I don't have anything to play a CD on Actually, I've uh, I've gone digital. I've saved, I think, a few thousand CDs just in case. But in due course, I'll get rid of them, too. No one wants them. You can't give them away. Young people don't even want to use them as coasters. I mean, young people think that they're as antique as a 45 or something or a, a 78. You know, what are those things? Might as well be a typewriter. But um, I, I spend a lot of time in the concert hall and at the opera house. And um, I remember a, a colleague of ours, ballet critic, Laura. I remember she said some years ago that um, it, it probably takes a certain amount of time to be a critic because so much of criticism is comparison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As Laura Jacobs. Yeah, yeah. Laura mm -hmm. Jacobs. Yeah, And she attends everything, too, mm. every ballet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's funny. I, I don't have a CD player either, come to think of it. Maybe a computer can play a CD still. Uh, I've actually gone back to LPs. Mm. I listen to a lot of records now, and I get great pleasure from that. So does my family. Yehudi Menuhin regretted the the advent of stereo sound. He preferred um, what was it for stereo? Mono. Mono. Yeah. Mono. yeah. He thought it was more honest. Mm. Uh, that that uh, the the music had more of a grounding. Mm. Funny. Yeah. And uh, YouTube delivers what you need. You find. Yeah, you know, I'm not picky when it comes to audio. Uh, strangely enough, I'm a musician or an ex-musician and, and a music critic, but I'm not an audiophile. Mm. I'm really not. I, mm. I, I, I don't judge uh, recordings technologically. I just want to be able to hear it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you mentioned you studied music as well. What was your background there? I was trained as a musician. Mm -hmm. I was trained as a pianist and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've um, music has been daily bread for a long time. Well, beyond what you hear, I wonder... How do you hear? As a critic, what do you listen for? Mm. Well, I sometimes say a couple of times a year, not more. I go to a concert or an opera as, as a civilian. That's what I say. Well, where I don't review is usually because I'm going to a performance of Friends. That's why. And, and, and of course, you don't write about Friends. And it's a much different experience. I think Susan Sontag said that a critic is someone who cannot pick up a book without a pencil in her hand. You know, and, and very rarely do I go to a concert or an opera without a pen in my hand. And as I'm listening, I am criticizing. This is not necessarily negative. Let me say evaluating. 
as I'm, and also thinking about what I'm going to say. Uh, maybe this is bad, James, and maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't admit it, but I do write in my head uh, when I'm sitting there listening. Do you write in your head when you're at a gallery or something? I write at concerts, even though I don't review them. I, yeah. I, I bring a, a pen a or a pencil. You're a critic. And, mm-hmm. you know, music brings out thoughts. Mm-hmm. They may be totally unrelated mm. to what I'm listening to, but the, the, the mind gets going. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's your case, too. And, and yes, when I'm at art, review, art shows now, I do tend to start to write it in my head. And if nothing comes out, it may be something I'm not going to cover because I just don't have anything to say about it. Mm. That's for a critic. That's what it ultimately comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah. When I, if 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 I'm listening to a new piece, I, I I I listen to the piece really without regard to the performance, to the execution of the piece. Mm. But otherwise, I listen to uh, technique, sound, phrasing, dynamics, rhythm, overall spirit. The intangibles, mm-hmm. and uh, it's sometimes even very hard to write about music. There's a famous phrase, uh, a saying, uh, usually attributed to Elvis Costello, that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh, but and I and and uh, Bernard Holland, the critic, once said, "I'm helpless to describe what music is. I can only hope to describe its aftershocks." He said, but I, I, um, when you've been doing it long enough, diligently. You have techniques, tricks even, and I, I think you can convey what a performance was like and what a new piece, or for that matter, what an old piece is like. Yeah, I have to say, um, I've tried it once or twice, and I find music very difficult to describe, much harder than art. Uh, you don't see it. Um, it. It goes into the air. It's invisible. How do you remember what you hear? How do you translate that to the page? Hmm. Well, um, you know, there are people who think in music, who, who think in musical terms. Also, I, I take notes. Uh, some critics are not note takers. I am one. And uh, even a word, a phrase, a point, something I wish to say. And then I hope I can read my writing later. <laughs> yeah, that's always, that's always something else. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but I, I, I do remember performance the way you would another experience the way you would encounter with a person maybe but I, this is another thing attributed to different people sometimes it's attributed to Debussy that um, music begins where human speech leaves off uh, but you have mm. to employ human speech somehow at, at opera it's easier mm-hmm. you have a sure. story you have, right. songs you have words mm-hmm. you know but pure music so to speak music without words abstract music is uh, something else I'd like to suggest to our listeners that every magazine has its own editorial style. When I arrived here some 20 years ago, my predecessor simply told me, we don't edit out the voice. (laughs) We like writers with voice, and Jay, you put a lot of voice in your writing. You write somewhat as you sound. Is this a secret of good criticism, to write as you sound? (laughs) Well, I've I've talked a lot about this, and I've been questioned, and, and one thing I say is I... I deny that I have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, other people say I'm, I'm full of it. Uh, I think I, I adopt a voice or employ a, a voice for, for the piece or even the paragraph at hand. Different voices for different things. Grave, light, so on. Uh, a reporting piece, an essay, a review, uh, a personal piece, a travelogue. People say, no, no, Jay, you're crazy. You do have a voice. I can recognize you at 200 yards or something. So I, I but, but, but I, I resist that idea. I, I do think that... Uh, written that writing should play 
should stay pretty close to speech, mm-hmm. to uh, spoken speech. I suppose the word speech covers writing as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I uh, guess, but we're talking about yeah. spoken speech. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, why do people write things down? so that people who aren't present can hear them later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that, that's how writing mm-hmm. began, mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I, I mm-hmm. suppose. Mm-hmm. And to the extent I give advice, um, always a dangerous thing, and free advice is sometimes worth what you pay for it. <laughs> I say, uh, write like you talk. And you have to edit it later, do. And um, make it natural. And you can tell when someone's, when writing is stiff. You know, I once knew a, a writer, won't name him, since deceased, one of the greatest talkers I ever knew. He spoke in marvelous, complete paragraphs. All he would have had to do was speak into a tape recorder. You could have just transcribed it. Somehow this person froze at the typewriter or the computer, and it just came out stiff. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I'll give, you, I'll give you the example of Norman Podhoritz. I had it in my head many years ago when I first started out, more than 20 years ago, certainly, that it was a little bit too loose, too casual to use contractions, you know, don't instead mm-hmm. of do not. And Norman almost never uses a contraction in his writing, almost never. But somehow it sounds perfectly smooth and natural the way he writes. He talks the same way. Mm-hmm. I could go through a piece of mine and change all the contractions. I could. Every single one, but all the aren'ts would be are nots. Wouldn't be hard. I could do it. I could do, I could do every single one. But it would be wrong. Mm-hmm. It would it would it would mess up the rhythm of the sentence. Mm-hmm. You have to do you. You have to be you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. As long as it's correct and mm-hmm. within bounds of taste. Let's say. Yeah. yeah. You know, I recall a conference many years ago uh, when we were. By talk- the way, ladies and gentlemen, I met this young fellow yeah. who's far younger than I in 1998. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's and he right. was as wonderful then as now. Uh, well, it wasn't soon after that we were at this conference together. And we were talking about the state of our institutions. The subject came to classical music, and despite I, I disappointed everyone. <laughs> yeah, you did disappoint us <laughs> by because, giving a positive report because it was a it was a dirge-like tone of the evening, and you kind of ruined it by ending on um, a major key. Uh, is classical music as hard up as we are all led to believe? Oh goodness gracious! Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Rosen, the late scholar pianist, said that the death of classical music is perhaps its oldest tradition. Uh, music is always dying in every generation. There'll be no more. This is it. Curtains. Finis. But here's the thing people have to remember. Classical music will never be popular. Never, ever, ever. Once in a blue moon, you might have something like the Three Tenors or Mario Lanza or Beverly Sills guest hosted The Tonight Show and so on. Classical music will never, ever be popular. Stop, pardon my French, whoring after popularity. Uh, there's a reason they call it pop music, pop music. Mm. It's popular. Mm-hmm. And there will always be a strong, healthy minority who love classical music, who listen to it, compose it, play it, sing it, conduct it, and support it, mm-hmm. always. But you have to accept that it will never be popular. Mm-hmm. And of course, and in, people don't. internationally, it's probably the, the universal language is classical yes. music. Well, when I brought up this question of the death of classical music with Lauren Mazel many years ago in about 08, the first words out of his mouth were, thank God for China. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music conservatories of the West are stuffed with East Asians. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Mm-hmm. They'll carry on the traditions. They are the new Jews. Mm-hmm. Any worrisome trends, though? It sounds like contemporary composition is no, a yeah, rough, rough path. Yeah. I, um, what I dislike in contemporary 
composition is sameness. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my lines, James, is that um, they accuse Vivaldi of having written the same concerto hundreds of times over. They say all Vivaldi concertos sound alike. I don't think that's true. But even if it were true, they would have the excuse of having been written by the same composer. What's the excuse of all of these composers, hundreds of them, who just conform, have to write the same thing over and over? And not to do the obnoxious thing of quoting oneself, but this is pretty good, James. I hope you'll think. I was um, sitting down for a a world premiere in Carnegie Hall, a world premiere, mind you. And when it was over, I turned to the critic sitting across the aisle from me, my friend Fred Kirshnett, and said, I'm so sick of that piece. And he threw back his head and laughed. He knew (laughs) just what I meant. Uh Branch out, Uh y'all. Is it... The twelve tone is it academic sci-fi mm-hmm. music? Music that sounds like you know spooky outer space sounds, jungle noises, uh, lots of percussion. I say that, that today's music has more pots and pans than Williams Sonoma. I'm using all my lines here. Uh, little, little tinklies. I sometimes call them fairy dust. Mm-hmm. I and um, I, I think that people are uh, afraid, are, are nervous about sounding different. Mm-hmm. Well, and they serve a function. The reason they're performed, you call them the obligatory... Oomps. The yeah. oomps. Um, um, obligatory opening modern piece. It, mm. it, it kind of serves as a, a... It allows these orchestras to say, hey, we're here. Checks a box. It checks a box. They get it over. It's usually pretty short. Mm-hmm. It's usually... It's almost always first or mm-hmm. second. It's mm-hmm. never after That's why the it's a noob. Yep. Yeah. And then, it's, and then they can move on to what they... They want to do. Do, exactly. do the performers like doing these things? Do they? Who who likes it? Who really likes it? I'll tell you a secret, being as discreet as possible. I know. How do I put this? While well, protecting the <laughs> protecting the guilty. I know a man who works in what you might call a second tier orchestra, who once worked in a first-tier orchestra. He works in a smaller market now. And he said something like this, we don't have the luxury of alienating our audience. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we don't do that stuff and, um, and we're happier for it. And the question comes up, should, should, should you program new music on the merits or should there be a kind of affirmative action for new music? Uh, should you program it, should you perform it just because it's new? Do you have an obligation? And I would say it's a bit of a blend. I think there's some obligation, but try to judge things on the merits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Philharmonic is now has a project called, I think they call it Project 19. It's to celebrate the 19th Amendment, 100th anniversary, which gave women the vote. And they've commissioned 19 female composers um, to, to, to write things for the Philharmonic. And I just wondered, if I were a female composer, would I be grateful for the commission? Would I be happy about it? Or would I smart at it a little? Mm-hmm. And I don't really know. I'm not in their moccasins, as we used to say. I can tell you a good story, what I regard as a pretty good story. In the late 19th century, I think, uh, someone organized a program of American music, American classical music. And there wasn't much of it then. And Edward McDowell, refused to allow a piece of his to be performed on grounds it didn't want to be favored because of his nationality. If it was good enough to perform, it didn't Mm. matter what nationality the composer was. And I really admire that stance, but it seems antique. Mm. Well, and you know, maybe performing things the audience doesn't like speaks to the strength of classical music. It can hold up, you know, it's a luxury uh, Mm. that they can do these things. It's a luxury to put on new operas that people prefer Mm. the old one. 
right? The, and, I feel I, like the, I, and I'm for tasting, like tasting new food, mm-hmm. you know, tasting menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was growing from the Midwest, we there was something called the no thank you helping. You, you, you had a you had a, a small helping of something you didn't think you would like. Mm-hmm. And but when something is both <laughs> new and, and, and good, mm-hmm. and both new and and and, and um, probably enduring, mm-hmm. you know, a new piece that likely has legs. Oh, that's wonderful. And then, James, I'm sorry to say I'm telling you secrets. I probably go a little overboard about it because I'm just so relieved yeah. not to have to write negatively. Well, just so relieved. So, you know, we don't sound like just a bunch of fuddy duddies. Yeah, uh, dinosaurs. We, yeah, dinosaurs. Is there a composer or two out there right now that you, you look forward to hearing? Well, I would say piece, yeah, pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Rodion Shadreen, I think, will be remembered for a very long time, and Arvo Parrott. And others, uh, Norman Della Gioia's son, uh, Justin Della Gioia, wrote a chamber work. I forget what it was—a quartet or a trio—that um, I was that I raved about, and uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit like um, Eisenhower said about Vi- Vice President Nixon uh, when asked about N- Nixon's achievements. Give me a week, and I'll come up with a list. Well, beyond New York, you also cover the Salzburg Festival. And what's it like to spend the summer in Salzburg? Well, I don't spend the whole summer, but I typically spend a couple of weeks. And um, it, it's wonderful. It's wonderful for anybody because of the beauty of the setting, the great beauty of the setting. But for music lovers, it's our Woodstock, mm-hmm. you know, our mm-hmm. Super Bowl, our World Series. Mm-hmm. It's just a little town, a little burg where classical musicians are celebrities. They are like pop stars when they walk down the street. And there may not be another place like that mm-hmm. in the whole world. There are plenty of summer festivals, but this is the one, in your opinion. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, around Lincoln Center in New York, in that little pocket, you see musicians. They might be recognized by Juilliard students, for mm-hmm. example. But in Salzburg, they're really big deals. And, and there are thousands of people gathered there who love classical music and are drunk on it. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's kind of nice. It takes over the town. Yes, it takes mm-hmm. over the town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Jay, I don't have to tell you we live in a world of distraction. Phones are ringing and pinging and pinging at every performance. Sometimes now people even answer their calls during the performance. (laughs) You know, one of the difficulties of opera for some people is that it causes a protracted separation from their digital devices. They they can't quite detox from it for long enough for a full opera. Yeah. The modern world presents... I I resemble that remark as the three students used to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we all do. The modern world presents its own challenges to classical music, and classical music challenges the modern world. For audiences now and into the future, how should or how can we listen for a while? Hmm. Several years ago, I interviewed in Salzburg before an audience, the great Swedish mezzo-soprano and Sophie von Otter. And I was talking that classical music is flourishing in many ways, but the recital really is not. She said, people just won't sit still for recitals anymore like they used to. Um, symphonic concerts, yes, operas, yet, but they, don't, they won't sit still for um, a recital of song, mm. which I think is just about the greatest thing in, in music. And um, I think the attention span is getting shorter. I went to a handle opera the other night, James, Agrippina. It seemed to take forever, my friend, even me, forever. It seemed twice as long as this. It seemed like the ring cycle done mm-hmm. all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, it seemed like three Parsifals strung together. I thought, am I shrinking? Do I have a problem? Am I shrinking? 
Um, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, the world today has a bias towards short, including in writing. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. You know, do I read books? Well, how about articles? Well, how about blog posts? Well, how about tweets? What's after tweets? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Half tweets? Oh, no. Yeah, and the funny thing is, though, I can go to a ring cycle, which is, I don't know, 16 hours, yeah. and it yeah. can seem short in a strange way. <sighs> but some concerts yeah. that are two hours can seem long. Oh, are you kidding? A piece of 10 minutes can seem long. Right. I, I've written that a lot. Mm-hmm. I said, Parsifal can go by like a bagatelle. You know, but it... it it all depends. Mm-hmm. Um, music has its own time unrelated to our watches and phones and clocks. It really does. In the case of Wagner, you enter what I and others call Wagner time. You lose sense of ordinary time and space. When that happens, it's great. Same with minimalism. Take a long, long minimalistic piece by, let's say, Philip Glass. If the drug takes, if the spell takes, if the hypnosis works, you can just sit there for hours. But if it does not, it is torture. It is a root canal where everyone, without anesthetic, how do you pronounce that word? You got like it. Like that? Yeah. Yeah, where everyone else has it and you don't. Mm-hmm. And you're in agony. Mm-hmm. Well, mm. Time is funny in music. That's so well put. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well put for something with a set rhythm and yet it can stretch out in strange mm-hmm. ways. You mm-hmm. get lost in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you're, mm-hmm. you're supposed to get lost in it. Right? Steve Reich wrote a piece called You Are Variations. Try it, try it. Put it on. See if see if you can submit to it. See if you'll yield to it. If you do, you'll be happy as heck. Mm. And if you don't, it'll be torture and you'll turn it off quickly, mm-hmm. which is fine. You've been listening to The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been Jay Nordlinger, music critic for The New Criterion, host of Music for a While, senior editor of National Review, and fellow at the National Review Institute. Jay appears every month in the New Criterion, and his music articles and podcasts can all be found at newcriterion.com. James, do you say there are 203 of those New York Chronicles? 203? I think that's, that's right. It's, wow. It's been 20 years, right? Wow. Yeah. Well, my, my math's a little slow. But, mm-hmm. So there was a 200th anniversary that I, that I missed. And 100th and 150th. <laughs> who, who keeps track of these yeah, things? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just say, I realize I'm interrupting you. Mm-hmm. What a privilege it is. Will you leave this in, please? What a privilege it is. You leave that part in too, please? I'm leaving what it all in. What a privilege in. it is to write for the New Criterion, to write for your magazine and Roger's magazine and Hilton's and Sam's. What a privilege. It's one of the great honors of my life. I and say, I'm, I think say the same I'm thing, so Jay. Grateful. I'm so grateful. I agree. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I'm just the luckiest duck yeah. in the world. We have such people. colleagues in, in, our, in the pages. We have colleagues. Yeah. And, and yeah. they have the space to write. And the, and the readership to You're read. the last of the Mohicans, baby. <laughs> hang hang in there, please. Uh, well, you know, we're doing okay, too. So I'm okay, glad, good. I'm glad to say. Good. Yeah. Um, I'll shut up. I, well, I just want to con- continue talking about all the things you do. Jay is also the author of Peace, They Say, a history of the Nobel Peace Prize, the most famous and controversial prize in the world, and Children of Monsters, an inquiry into the sons and daughters of dictators, both published by Encounter Books. National Review Books also has published two collections of Jay's writings, Here, There, and Everywhere, and Digging In. That's just the beginning of everything Jay does, but we'll have to end it there since I'm sure he's due at his next performance. Jay, thank you for joining us. Pure pleasure. Thanks, James. Strength to your hands. <laughs>